Good morning, faith family. It's good to see if you got a Bible, go to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Uh, this morning we're finishing, as Pastor Terry mentioned, our mixtape uh, series. The last several weeks we've been looking at uh, a variety of different psalms. That uh, the book of Psalms in the Bible is a collection of songs that we can sing. Uh, they really deal with a lot of the different seasons of life. Can I just tell you, like, I have been so incredibly amazed at just how this series has resonated with people. I mean, even just in the comments a few moments ago, people coming up to me saying, just so appreciated this series because it's so real. Like, it, it, I'm going through that season, or I'm dealing with a situation where I needed that song. And, uh, you know, it just speaks to how God's Word is alive and active, and it meets us right where we are. And so as I thought about how are we going to finish the mixtape series, I actually had planned something else, but just felt like we got to end this on Psalm 139, uh, a psalm that probably is a favorite for many of you because it, there is truth in here that's so basic and yet so profound that we need to be reminded of it over and over and over and over again. And so would you please stand as we honor God's Word and read here Psalm 139. This is a psalm of David. So David writes and sings here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these words. Let's, let's listen to these words as we read it. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. 
and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is God's Word. Would you, would you please pray with me? God, what an amazing song that David sings. Help us understand it. Holy Spirit, lead us to understand the truth revealed to us. I pray everyone in this room leaves today being able to sing this song. I ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. I am a man. That's what the sign said. The image was made famous during the civil rights movement of the 1960s. It was an image of a long line of African American men, sanitation workers from Memphis, Tennessee, holding signs. White signs with black letters that read, I am a man. That is, after all, what the civil rights movement was all about. It wasn't about who gets to eat in what restaurant. It wasn't about who gets to drink at what water fountain. It's not about who gets to vote. The fundamental problem, the fundamental issue that was taking place in America in the 1960s was you had an entire group of people being treated as less than persons simply because of the color of their skin. You had a culture in the 1960s where an African-American man would be called boy. I am thankful that a lot has changed since the 1960s. And it changed largely in part because of churches led by African-American churches who stood up and said, no, we believe in something higher than that. What we believe is that every human being is created in the image of God and therefore worthy of honor and dignity and to be treated as a man. I share that with you because if history has taught us anything, it is that humanity has a tendency to dehumanize itself. The examples would take us all day. Uh, the Nazis called the Jews rats. The Hutus called the Tutsis cockroaches. Slave owners called slaves animals. Even in our own day, we have part of our culture that will call human beings a fetus. If history has shown us anything, it is humanity's tendency to dehumanize and devalue itself. And that's not just true with large groups of people. It's also true on a smaller scale in what we experience in everyday life. Have you ever been made to feel like from the doctor you're nothing more than an insurance number? From the landlord you're nothing more than a tenant? To the politician you're nothing more than a vote? To the boss you're nothing more than an employee? 
To the church, you're nothing more than someone in a seat and a dollar in the plate. In the social media world, you're nothing more than a Twitter follower or a Facebook friend. Dehumanization is the ethos of human culture. Listen to one woman's confession that I came across in my preparation for this message. Here's what she said. Nobody really knows me. They know what I do. They know where I work. They know where I live, but they don't know me. To my husband, I'm an object of sexual release. To my children, I'm an unpaid servant. If I dropped off the face of the earth tomorrow, any number of replacements could fill my role. Nobody knows me. Have you ever felt that way? Dehumanized. Devalued. Like you were nothing more than a statistic. Just another face in the crowd. Just another brick in the wall. In a culture that celebrates glamorous supermodels and sports athletes and best-selling authors, you have felt like at times nothing more than to whom it may concern if you have ever felt that way, or if this morning you feel that way, God has a song for you. Psalm 139. Look at verse 1. Oh Lord, Yahweh, covenant God, you have searched me and known me. What is the thought that has preoccupied the mind of David to the point that he is spilling over into song and praise and worship? Faith family right here, don't you dare run past this truth this morning. Let it sink in. David is in all of the reality that God knows you. He knows you. There are almost 7 billion people in the world. Do you realize how much it takes to keep the entire universe going? And yet in all of that crowd, in all of that creation, David stands in awe that God has searched me and he knows me. You look right here. Your boss may undervalue you. Your spouse may ignore you. Your opponent may underestimate you, but you mark this down. God knows you. God knows you. And this is not some mere theological exercise for David. He's not just saying, I believe in the omniscience of God. I get an A on my systematic theology exam. Oh no, for David it's personal. It's why he's worshiping God. It's why he's in awe of God. Notice the pronouns. Verse 1, Oh Lord, you have searched humanity. No. You have known people. No. You have searched me. 
And you have known me when I sit down. You've searched out my path before a word was on my tongue. David understands this is personal. Faith family, we must as well. You are not some chunk of flesh in the blob of humanity. God individually and specifically knows you. When's the last time that kept you up at night? God knows me. And how much about me does He know? I'm glad you asked. Verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. What's he saying? God doesn't just know me. He knows everything about me. He knows when I get up. He knows when I go to bed. He knows what coffee I drink. He knows where I go during the day. He knows my actions. He knows me more than a couple that's been married for 50 years. You ever been around that couple? They start finishing one another's sentences and they're all cuddly and you know all that. You're like, okay, you know each other really well. God says, I know you more than that. I know what you're going to say, not just before you say it, but before you even know what you're going to say. God knows us that intimately. That's amazing. I couldn't help but to get out of my mind. Do you remember that scene in Bruce Almighty? Just a little warning. Don't take your theology from Bruce Almighty, okay? I must give that warning. But I couldn't help but be reminded of that. Do you remember Bruce, the main character with Jim Carrey? He's struggling early on with this sense of, does God know what I'm going through? You ever felt like that? You know, am I just generic? Does my situation even matter? And he gets an appointment with God. God goes old school and calls his pager. You remember the pager? It's like as old as the clapper, you know? I mean, it's like surely God has better technology than that. But Bruce is then called in to have a meeting where he begins to understand just how much God knows about him. Take a look. You must be Bruce. I've been expecting you. This is hilarious. So you're the boss and the electrician and the janitor. Must be a killer Christmas party. Don't get drunk, though. One of you might need a ride home. <laughs> you always were funny, Bruce. Just like your father. He didn't mind rolling up his sleeves either, son. People underestimate the benefit of good old manual labor. It's freedom in it. Some of the happiest people in the world go home smelling to high heavens at the end of the day. Murray, what is this? How do you know my father and how do you get my pager number? Oh, I know quite a lot about you, Bruce. Just about everything there is to know. Everything you've ever said or done or thought about doing. Right there in that file cabinet. Wow, a whole drawer just for me. Mind if I take a look? Shall I? That's not be good. Now, 
This last entry was a little disturbing. Now listen, I have to believe when we get to heaven, God is gonna have better technology than a filing cabinet, all right? But what, what's amazing about that clip is that Morgan Freeman quotes Psalm 139. Every single thought, every single action, everything that you've even thought about or considered, God knows. God knows. And so the question is, how does he know so much about me? I'm glad you asked. Verse 7, you ask great questions. <laughs> where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee your presence? Here it is. You know everything there is to know about me in part because everywhere I go, you're there. Where can I flee from your presence? Where can I escape your spirit? And then he fleshes that out. He gives us the details of that in verse 8. Look at it. If I ascend to heaven, that is, if I go to the highest place imaginable, climb the tallest ladder, guess what? You're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that is, if I go to the place of the dead, the, the lowest place imaginable, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, that is, if I go east, you're there. If I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, that is, if I go west, why? The Mediterranean Sea was to the west. And hold on for just a moment. Does anybody recall a guy in the Bible who went west, young man, thinking he could, if I recall correctly, flee from the presence of the Lord? Who was that? Help me out. Jonah, that's right. He thought he could flee from God. And what did he learn? It's only been a few months, you remember. That's a foolish idea. That's what David's saying. You know so much about me because everywhere I go, you're there. High, low, east, west. And even, look at verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. In other words, I'll go to the darkest place. I'll hide in the darkest corner of the room. And the light about me be night. Verse 12, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. In other words, even if I pull the covers up over my head and hide and seek from God, he sees the lump. If I go to the darkest place imaginable, the problem is dark is light to you. There is no escape. He knows everything about me, and he's everywhere I go. He's with me in everything. As the great theologian Marvin Gaye said, ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough, ain't no river wide enough, I'm going to change the ending, that can keep God's presence away from you. That's not the only reason God knows everything about you. Notice verse 13, the word for, it's a reason. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, 
intricately woven in the depths of the earth. How can this God know so much about me? Answer, he's everywhere I go, and he's the very one who created my life. And who knows better the painting than the painter? Who knows better than the book than the author? Who knows, who knows better than the, the song, than the composer? Who knows you better than the one who created you? And he did so with great detail. Notice the language again David uses. Formed in my inward parts, knitted me together in my mother's womb, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You're not a statistic. You're not a hunk of flesh in the blob of humanity. You are a person woven, knitted together by God. That's how He knows everything about you. He is your Creator with all detail. Of God's creation, He wove you together. He knitted you in your mother's womb. Here's what this means. We understand more now than David would have understood then. It it means that when one cell from your mom came together with one cell from your dad and formed a single cell with 30,000 genes and 46 chromosomes and, and a DNA structure was formed that had never been created before and would never be created again, faith family, God was there. And on day three, when you entered into your mother's womb and you started growing at an incredible rate because you were one time one cell, now you're 16 and you're doubling in size day after day, faith family, God was there. And in month one, when now you have a backbone, you have a spinal cord, your nervous system is forming, and you're now, congratulations, 10,000 times bigger than you were when you started. God was there. And in month three, when your body was formed and you started kicking because you didn't like the Mexican food your mama ate, And you started balling up your hands into a fist. I'm telling you, God was there. And in month five, when your eyes could now see and your ears had been developed to the point that you could now recognize your mother's voice, God was there. And in month seven, eight, and nine, where you could now see and hear and taste and touch, and then life starts getting a little crowded in there, so you head to the birth canal. No pictures and you emerge into the world no pictures and then you come in and you let out a cry that fills the entire room I'm telling you God was there how does God know you How does God know you with such great detail? It's because he's the one who created every detail that is you God knows everything about me because His presence is always with me and He's the very one who created me. You're not a statistic. You're not a to whom it may concern. 
You are a man. A person fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. Anybody want to just say like what David said? I can't even get my mind around that. That thought is too wonderful for me. The implications of this would take us all day. All day long. We could begin to work out what this means. I want to give you two quickly of, of what understanding God as our Creator really means. And, and let this challenge you and reaffirm you, but, but I must say it to give right application of this text. First is this, the implication for the importance of life is significant. I'm going to say this, and you are hearing me correctly. I hate Sanctity of Life Sunday. I hate it. And you say, that's a little strange coming from a pastor. Let me explain. I hate the fact that we even have to have a Sanctity of Life Sunday in America. It is all the more proof that the ethos of human culture is dehumanization. The fact that we even have to say words that life is precious and valuable and worthy because of the image of God just tells us how much work there is still left to do. You know what I want? I want a day when you'll never have Sanctity of Life Sunday because everybody already recognizes that life is worthy to be set apart for honor and dignity. It's why we ought to, as Christians, hate with a holy hate racism. Because all human life is created in the image of God. It's why we should care for the elderly. We speak a lot about the unborn and the young. This also applies to how we recognize dignity in old age. To quote the, the famous theologian in Dumb and Dumber, elderly people, while dangerous behind the will, will still serve a purpose in society, right? And I say that tongue-in-cheek, but the Word of God is saying here is all of life. That means the nine-month-old and the 90-year-old is precious to God. It means human beings, regardless of skin color and economic class and status, matter to God. Let me ask you this. How many of you, if I were to say, first one up here gets this, would be ready for an altar call, right? I mean, just, come on, call us, Billy Graham, I'm coming, right? Yeah, anybody in this, no strings attached, no like hidden agenda, how many of you would take this if it were given to you? You liars. Some of you are like, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Yes, you would. Why? Because you recognize value in this. Some of you are already like, what could I spend that on, right? You recognize this as valuable. Now, what if I like crumpled it up? Would you still want it? Sure. What if it was worn a little bit? Would you still want it? Absolutely, because you see the value in it. Now, what if I offered you this? There's the back. 
right? Just for full disclosure, right? Anybody like jumping over the aisles to get this? Anybody thinking, wow, what could I use that on? No. Why is it that you recognize value in this, but you do not recognize value in this? It's one simple answer. You ready? It's Creator. This was created with authority and bears an image. This was made by a machine. If that's true with money, how much more humanity created with the image of God? The implication of the value of life of Psalm 139 is significant, but not only that, hey, let's get out of the forest and get down to the trees. It also means that your life is significant. Right here, your eye color, your hair color, the shape of your body, your voice, even if it does sound like it's from the South. Why is it that you look in the mirror and you're so dissatisfied with God for the way He made you? That is in complete violation to Psalm 139. The short want to be tall. The tall want to be short. The skinny want to stay skinny. The <laughs> Careful where that one goes. The intellectuals want to be athletic. The athletic want to be intellectual. I mean, on and on we can go. Here's the point. God created you. He wove you together in your mother's womb. See that in the mirror. See that in the mirror. How does this God know so much about me? It's because He's everywhere I go, and He is the very one who created my life. And that's not just in the womb, but it also goes to the tomb and beyond. Verse 16 your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. Every one of what? The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. David recognizes the sovereignty of God from beginning to end. God is just as much sovereign in your creation as He is your end. He's God over all of that. And it's at this point that I've got to sit down and say, if we're really tracking with what David is saying, that God knows every single thing about me, and He's everywhere I go, always with me, and He created me, and not only created me, is sovereign over to my very end and beyond. That thought is too wonderful for me to comprehend. It's just amazing. And if, if you're here this morning and you would say, I don't, I don't know that I can grasp all that. Good! It means you're ready to sing Psalm 139. There is another side to this that we must talk about before we close. Anybody in here hearing all this a little, just slightly uncomfortable? Like you would say, i got to be honest, I'm, I'm experiencing a little bit of divine claustrophobia. 
I mean, seriously, you know, like, this is a little intrusive. God's violating my American liberties, tapping my phone, con- phone conversations and reading my email and peeking in through my window. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with this, Pastor, the fact that God knows every single thing about me. And you know why I know if you're being honest, you're thinking that? Because while we know we need to be known this way, all of us have things we'd rather not be known. I don't have a problem with God knowing about my compassion for the poor. I'm not sure I want him knowing about the lust I have for the woman at the gym. I don't have a problem with God knowing that I'm caring for my elderly parents. I'm not sure I want him knowing about my jealousy and bitterness towards those getting married while I remain single. In other words, I like the idea that I'm not generic in the eyes of God. I'm just not sure I like him knowing the specifics. It's because if you really understand the knowledge of God about you, that's actually a terrifying thing. That He knows everything that's under the carpet and everything under the mattress and everything that's stuck back in the corner and everything you've ever tried to hide, He knows. Which gets me to the last point. Oh, if you've been zoning out, zone right back in here. And here's why. Right here. If God knows everything about you, and He is always with you, and He created you, that is terrifying. Unless you know one more thing. It's what David knows that turns the whole psalm into good news. And an act of worship and praise. It is verse 10. Now before I read it, I want to give you the flow of the passage. Here's what he's saying. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you're there. In other words, no matter where I go, you're there. And here's what's happening in the there. Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand, oh how precious, shall hold me. In other words, here's what David knows. Given that God knows everything because He's everywhere and He created me, the hand that should crush me guides me. Do you want to know what Wes Feltner deserves? Because God knows everything in my life. What he deserves is to be cast out into darkness for eternity. But do you know what God does? With his right hand, he holds me. In other words, what makes God's knowledge and presence and creation good news is his love. Are you kidding me? The God who knows everything about you is the one who loves you the most. It's the only thing that turns the knowledge of God from a terrifying thing to a matter of worship. It doesn't work that way in human relationships most of the time, does it? In human relationships, it's often the more you know about somebody, the less you like them. Not with God. Not with God. God knows 
everything about you, and yet he loves you. I want to show you how the New Testament teaches that very thing. And this is the part where I come close to jumping off the stage because of this news. I want to read Hebrews 4, and I want to ask you this. Do you hear Psalm 139 in it? Just listen. Just listen. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. No creature is hidden from his sight. God knows everything. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In other words, God knows everything and you're going to stand before him and everything that has been and is and will be exposed on that day and you will have to give an account for all of it. That's terrifying. Unless you know something. What does the writer of Hebrews say next? But... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, who can sympathize with our weaknesses, for, we, for he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. What is the writer's argument? Standing before God is a terrifying thing because He knows everything about you unless you know someone. That is the love of God through Jesus Christ that allows you not to run to the highest mountain, not to crawl under the covers, not to go to the lowest place, not to hide in the dark corner, but to come where? Before the throne of God to receive grace. Don't you understand the knowledge and presence and creation of God is terrible news if you don't personally know God's love for you. The ultimate expression of Psalm 139 is Jesus Christ. Why? God fully knows you. How does He fully know you? Because He became like you, yet was without sin. Here's a thought for you. The very one who created you in the womb came into a womb. And therefore, the only confidence you will ever have to stand before the God who knows everything about you is the love of God found only in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? A man who knows full well that if history has taught us anything, it has taught us that it has a tendency to dehumanize others. The Bible says that he was mocked and he was ridiculed and he was taunted king of the Jews. And he was beaten so bad the Bible says he was like a worm. Didn't even want to look at him. He was, he was hardly even a man. 
that you would look upon him. And they took him out, sighed the city, and they left him for dead. Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be the focus of a culture that devalues someone. Therefore, faith family, when that day comes and you feel like a statistic, you, you feel devalued because of a skin color. You feel like people are treating you like anything but a man. Sing Psalm 139. Sing it. And be reminded of this glorious truth. God knows you. God is with you. God created you. And even in all of that, loves you in the person of Jesus Christ who knows full well what it's like to be a man. Let's pray. God, what a, what a wonderful song. I've preached this four times this weekend and it still blows my mind. What a wonderful, wonderful thought that you know us, you're with us, you are our creator, and so who better to love us than you? But here's what I know, God. Um, the psalm was personal to David, and so it has to be personal to us. You've made that clear in your word how that happens. It happens through faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only way we sing this song. So Holy Spirit, would you come now and would you convict, would you cause that heart here this morning that doesn't know you to say, oh God, I want to know you and I want to be fully known. For the one here that is a believer, that is a follower, but yet there's been distance the relationship feels generic. Oh, that they would be restored and renewed in your love. Help us think about this truth and this reality as we sing this song. In Jesus' name, amen.